Welcome to the Consulting Growth Podcast. I'm Professor Joe Omani, a professor of consulting at Cardiff University and an advisor to consultancies that want to grow. If you'd like to find more out about me and access some free resources to help your consultancy grow, do please visit joeomani.com. That's J-O-E-O-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Growth Podcast. I am here today with Tom McMakin, who is currently the CEO and also the founder of Profitable Ideas Exchange, which is a really interesting company. And we'll go on to all the reasons for why it's interesting. Tom's also got his fingers in many other pies, I'm sure. But I'll let you tell us a bit about that, Tom. So, Tom, firstly, welcome. And secondly, do tell us a little bit about about yourself. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me on the show here, Joe. I look forward to our conversation. You know, like you, I'm very focused on helping professional services firms or expert services firms build a bridge from their expertise to the people that they can most help, what we call business development. And it's not an easy or obvious game, and nor is it one that I naturally came to. I'm somewhat of an accidental business person. I graduated from university with a political philosophy degree and then made my way to the continent of Africa, where I volunteered for two years, helping women set up consumer co-ops and uh, was a teacher and worked for a politician before I ended up working for a, a bread company and helping to lead that company to 250 stores nationwide. I sold that company and worked for a private equity firm. And only then, I'm not actually the founder of this firm, but I bought this firm 11 years ago when it was quite small okay, from its founder okay. um, and have grown it ever since. So it's uh, when you're a political philosophy major, you have to be scrappy and figure out something uh, other than just teaching political philosophy by way of uh, making a living. So you volunteered for the Peace Corps in Africa. You, you took a non-traditional route. You don't have the traditional MBA. Like me, I did my undergrad in Greek philosophy. Again, couldn't really find many jobs in, in, in that area. So there's quite a big jump from going from the Peace Corps volunteering in Africa to becoming chief operating officer of a pretty big food manufacturing company. So how did, did you work your way up or did you, how did that work? I did work my way up. My first job at the uh, bread company was the newsletter editor, and I, I worked wow. my way up. It was a um, it's a franchise, okay. so it's a series of small shops around the country. And so, as it turned out, my experience in the Peace Corps setting up, if you will, small shops, small cooperatives, came in handy when it came to sort of advising micro businesses on how to manage their top and bottom lines. How interesting. So this is good to hear because I get my students, so I teach 400 business master's students, I get them working with local charities. And I always say it's, I get them to act as consultants. And I always say to them, it's much harder with a small firm, because every penny counts, you can't afford to go wrong. And the founder's going to be on your back all the time. Whereas you know, if you're consulting for a large bank, and you lose a couple of million, you know, no one's really going to notice. It's so true. You know, when you're working with a small business, every financial decision is a choice between that investment and taking your kids to Disneyland. They suffer those decisions quite personally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. High, okay. Of high consequence. Everything's of high consequence, even if the relative dollars are small. Okay. So now, listen, I'd like to just, so this is, we're meant to be focusing on growth. All of this is fascinating. I'm really interested in your move to the Profitable Ideas Exchange. Now, 
you could have gone to work for a big corporate, you've got a good track record, you've got the private equity experience behind you. So what was it about this firm that you thought, this is the one I'm going to dedicate um, 11 years of my life so far to this, I'm going to build this as opposed to doing all the other things that you could have done? When you're building a small company, it's quite fun. You're recruiting people that you want to work with. You're puzzling through the question of how can we together as a community in this company build value in excess of the value that we could create separately. And if you think of that as a kind of great game, one that I think profits from exploration and risk-taking, it's quite fun to organize around that mission of creating value. You know, I was in the private equity world and I looked at an awful lot of companies on behalf of a private equity investor. And that's a loveless game because more often than not, you look at a company, you cause them to fall in love with the idea that you might invest quite a lot of money. Um, They open the kimono to you and, and share all their secrets. And then you say, no, thank you. Actually, it's too expensive or we're not very bullish on this business model. And, uh, you're forever leaving people at the altar. In a small company, you're building long-term relationships. My management team, I've worked with between 7 and 11 years. I've seen them have children. I've seen them get married. It's an investment of human beings in each other Mm. for a sort of common and desired future that has an enduring aspect to it that I find very fulfilling. Yeah, I do get that because my background and area of expertise is the consulting game. And I get a lot of students who are leaving that exact reason because they're seeing a tiny little snapshot of the client when they go in and do their bit and they want to see the whole process they want ownership they want to work with people for more than three months i guess you know it's interesting how i was attracted to professional services consulting comes naturally to me Mm. the notion that you could quickly size up a, a challenge and add value by mixing in your experience and your Mm base of knowledge to help a client. That seems like it's interesting to me. Shortly after I joined Pi, I found myself asking two questions. How should we be better consulting or serving our clients Mm -hmm. with business development advice since that's what we do? And then there's a sort of recursive thing too, where I wanted to grow our own business. So I needed to unpack how you do sell consulting. (laughs) And so what better way to do that than write a book? I'd written a book about the bread company And a book gives you permission to ask a whole bunch of smart people questions about what they're doing. And they're honored to spend time with you. And so um, with a partner, I wrote a book called How Clients Buy, which asked the question, what are the preconditions that clients must satisfy before they engage with you? So it's a little bit of a, it's a little less of the manipulation that we normally see in sales books, which is what kind of trick, what kind of hack, relation could I affect? on an un, sort of uh, unprepared client such that I could cause them to engage with me. I don't really like that at all. I think yeah. that the joining of my experience with your experience in a consultancy agreement um, should be more natural than that. Yeah. So we asked the question, what are the seven elements that must exist in a client before they pull the trigger on you? And a super interesting sort of examination of why clients engage. As soon as we wrote that book, Joe, we got a lot of feedback from people that said, you know, this is quite interesting, but actually 80% of our new revenues in a given year 
come from existing clients. They have nothing to do with new clients at all. You've kind of missed the boat. So we wrote a second volume and asked that second question. All right, so now you've got an engagement with a client. How do you land and expand? How do you expand that remit such that uh, you're doing more business with a client, particularly if it's large and has many verticals or geographies that are available for you to serve? And that book for people listening is called Never Say Sell. And completely coincidentally, and this was a genuine coincidence, I was reading it when I reached out to Tom for an interview some time ago. And I didn't realize that Tom was the person that had written it. I've got an awful memory. I blame it on my kids. And so people will always say, oh, what are you reading now? And I'll sometimes remember the title, but I'll never remember the author. And there you were. And I ran off and got it for you, didn't I? You did. (laughs) In spite of using a small world moment there. Yeah. And it's a great read. But I'm doing it backwards. I'm starting with Never Say Sell. And then I'm going to read How Clients Buy. But I don't think that's going to be a problem. Really good book. Some fascinating tips in there. But I also know you've been interviewed elsewhere about sort of summaries of that. And there's for people that are interested, I'd buy the books and listen to those podcasts. Tom, what I'd like to dive into now in a bit more detail is the is Pi, the Profitable Ideas Exchange. And really, if you could give us a snapshot of where you are now in terms of number of employees, and if you can sort of loosely the revenue figures and who perhaps your major client, are you allowed to, maybe you're not allowed to mention clients by name, but what you do for your clients generally? Yeah, no, great question. So today we have right around 100 employees and roughly 14 or $15 million in revenues. And that's the, when I bought into the company, we had about a million and I don't know, six people or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's selling professional services is difficult, Joe. It's not like selling a phone where you might sell them on features or attributes. You sell professional services based on relationships and referral and reputation. And so the question of the game is, how do you drive that? We're lucky in that we're not mass advertisers. The number of people that we could we could count as the universe of people that we could help um, or, or if we engage with could meaningfully grow our business are quite small. Oftentimes consultants talk about one or 200 people. What makes sense is to begin to get to know those people. So what our firm does on behalf of large consultancies is convene likely buyers into small peer groups that meet by Zoom and talk shop. And we position our clients as the host of these gatherings. Um, And in that way, they signal to the folks that they want to do business with that they care about them and that they care about the subject and that perhaps they have some value to add to the conversation. It it gives them an excuse to stay close, to stay proximate Mm -hmm. to these clients. Because one thing that we know about selling consultants consultancy services is that the sales cycle is quite long or can be quite long. Mm, It can be a a lifetime. You could be a CPA, a registered accountant, chartered accountant, and you can work with someone on a client. And 20 years later, they can grow up to be the CFO of a company and you engage with them. So staying close to the people that you want to help over time is super important. Anyway, long story short, if you were the head of the supply chain practice at McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group or Accenture, IBM, one of the big four accounting firms, you would want to talk to chief supply chain officers. What we do is like sheepdog, go and round those 
chief supply chain officers up into a kind of fun conversation about what's working for them and what's not. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that way, help our hosts, our client at one of those big firms get to know those folks and help them understand what the idiosyncratic challenges are of their potential clients and start a discussion. My son says we're sort of match.com for businesses. We're like, Joe, I think you should meet Sally. You have quite a lot in common. Joe's quite smart at this and Sally's got something (laughs) she's interested in solving. Anyway, we bring people together in that way and they scope business. I can see the value of, I can see that's huge value because cold calling, it is possible, but you need numbers of tens of thousands to make that work. If you've got a small population that you're trying to sell to and you want to build the relationship, And of course, familiarity is part of that as well. If you're seeing the same person two or three times a year over maybe a couple of years, then they're going to be front of mind, I guess, when you've got a challenge that you think they can help with. You know, it's interesting. You're a professor. And so uh, I'll tell you about an interview I did with a professor at Northwestern University in their business school. He said, what you've got here is a credence good. And I said, I have no idea what a credence good is. And he said, a credence good is where the person that is fixing the problem is also the person that's diagnosing the problem. So by contrast, if I buy a phone, I know I need a phone. I diagnose the problem and I go into a store and I pick up a phone that could be sold by a very junior person. Mm -hmm. But in professional services or consulting, the most senior people do the selling because they're the ones that can go in and go, here's what's wrong and here's how to fix it. Now, the interesting sort of, I think, implication of this is that There's a much higher degree of trust that is required for a consultant to engage. You don't just have to demonstrate that you know how to do the work, but you also have to create trust between you and the client. I mean, the example for me is like a car. If my car starts, if I have an old Impala and it starts going ping, 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 ping on the engine, and I take it into the mechanic and the mechanic, they could tell me the truth and say, there's nothing wrong with your engine. It's just quite old. Mm. Put some high test gasoline in it. You'll be fine. Or they could not tell me the truth and say, you need a new valve job for $3,500. I don't know any different. I have to trust them to diagnose the problem. So we're like the car mechanic in that way. It's not just demonstrating that we're good at something, but that uh, we have the best interest of our clients at heart. How do you do that? Well, humans do that by hanging out with each other. And the longer they're with each other, the more they, they get a sense of that person's a willingness to sacrifice their own self-interest, at least in the short run, for your best interests. And so underwriting these conversations and having a conversation, engaging with people over a long period of time, builds that trust and builds ultimately Mm. new work. I guess also there's a secondary benefit there, which is that certainly with smaller consultancies, I very often come across founders who are desperately trying to sell something that they think is brilliant, but actually the clients aren't interested in or talking about. And they'll keep flogging this dead horse because they'd invested so much time or money in it. And I'm guessing the feedback, you know, actually just listening to what clients are talking about can perhaps spark ideas with the partners about what new things they should be developing. I can tell you dozens of stories of uh, the inconvenient truth that (laughs) popped up in these kinds of conversations where a consultant has spent an awful lot of time solving yesterday's problem. They've got a brochure, they've got a robust set of case studies and blueprint for solving the problem only to hear in these conversations that people have moved on from that. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. A really good example right now is the big four and the big three consultancies are working hard to sell artificial intelligence. 
Mm-hmm. But when you talk to big companies, a number of them are engaged in process automation, what's called RPA. Sure. But very few are actually using artificial intelligence. They're sort of sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what comes of it. And so the consultants are selling something that people don't want quite yeah, yet. Yeah, sure. It's interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Now, I, I want to move on to the growth of um, Pi. And could you, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of founders about growing firms. Um, but everyone seems to have a different major challenge. And so I'd like to know some of the challenges that you've, some of the biggest challenges that you've hit along the way and how you overcame them. I realize that's a huge question. So if you just want to talk about one or two, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is when I came in, well, there were a couple. One was a strategic challenge. The founder was like the founders that you've talked about, which is they're quite inventive. That's their nature. Mm. So they've invented something. And it's got purchased in the marketplace and then they grow bored with it and they want to invent something else and then they want to invent something else. And so the founders that I've worked with oftentimes lack focus. And what I did was came in almost immediately and said, you've got an array of six different things. Here's the one that's working. The dogs are eating this particular dog. How about we sell more of that dog? Um, so I focused the business on what was, what got traction in the workplace. I think my, or in the marketplace, I think my second biggest challenge was the folks that worked at Pi when I first came there, by and large, they weren't great people. It's not that they weren't smart. They carried a kind of chip around on their shoulder. They had this sort of dysfunction that they were trying to work out in the workplace. It didn't really make it very much fun to go to work. And I mean, I think, frankly, that was a reflection of the values of the company in the early days. And so I wanted to, look, I just selfishly, I wanted to work with people I wanted to work with. Mm, mm. And so changing the culture and recruiting people that I thought were good people of good will and high intelligence, high civility, was a little bit of a way to turn the ship of state. And I mean, you only do it one employee at a time. I remember the first person, her name was Carly Breen. She still works with us. And she's just a gem. And we hired a gem. And then I said, how about we hire more Carly's and then everyone knew what we were looking for. We got two or three more Carly's and then then two or three people left. And then pretty soon there were more Carly's than there were legacies. And we began to sort of turn the ship of state, if you will. So that was a big challenge early on. I presume you had to have some difficult conversations as well. I didn't go about firing a lot of people. I think people grow to see that you're changing the company and it's moving in a different direction. I didn't want to be that violent. I wanted to grow past the people that I thought were problems. And that's what we did. Yeah. And then I think the next challenge is we had to turn on the business development faucet. So I think early on, particularly with founders and consultants that are consultants, they're working their Rolodex. They did that for 10 years and they got a million dollars in sales based Mm -hmm. on previous relationships. But then those people retired. The founder, our founder was grew to be in his seventies. So his experience or his Rolodex was mm. less relevant, less current. And uh, a lot of consultants face this sort of pivot point where they have to move on from their mm. personal relationships to building a business development engine. So we had to do that as well. And so writing these books was part of that project to figure out how the devil do you sell? expert services. And once we figured that out, we began to get a sort of uh, build a machine that got us in front of the right people at the right time and helped us stay in touch. Okay. Listen, given how difficult to reach some of those people are, I'd be really interested to know, I know sort of general PSF business development, teach it, and these are really hard to 
get people. You know, you're talking about CXOs of large companies, and I haven't been in that position. I've been near that position, and even in my position when I was in industry, I was getting bombarded with people every day. So how did you crack that nut? How did you go beyond the personal networks to start getting these hard-to-get people signed up? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. So the first thing you have to do is make sure that your product, if you will, the thing that you're selling, if you will, is compelling. So in this case, we were selling to consultants uh, a roundtable that met periodically of likely buyers. So those people are CXOs, as you say, and they're very busy and difficult to get in front of. That said, we knew the CXOs wanted to talk to each other. Joe, we're all making this up as we go along. None of us have been doing the job that we're doing right now ever before. I've never been the CEO of a 100-person person person company in 2022 facing COVID. It's all brand new to me. I've got relevant experience, but never this Mm. at this time. So all these CXOs are in the same position. They just got the big job. They became CFO last year, or they just bought a new company. It's twice the size of any company they've ever run before. And we're all a little scared. We have our expertise, but we want to benchmark what we're doing against what other people are doing. So we talked to cybersecurity. We brought together cybersecurity experts in companies called CISOs. You know, they were talking about securing mobile phones for their workforce. And one person said, we just have one platform, Apple. That's all we support. It allows us to be sort of monstrously effective at at, uh, securing those phones. Another person said, well, you know, we're actually, we're agnostic. People can have any kind of phone they want and we'll secure it because we feel like that's the way innovation occurs Hmm. is that people bring in new devices we've never seen before. So if I'm a a CISO and I hear that and I think to myself, I'm just going to support Android phones and Google phones and Apple phones. I'm located in a kind of, in the university of my peers in a kind of safe place. There's a range of options to this answers to this question. And I'm located in the center. I'm not some sort of oddball or an outline. So knowing that executives want to talk with each other, we're just very clear when we call into their offices that this is free, it's by Zoom, it's only an hour, you don't have to travel. And most importantly, it's not a webinar. The consultant won't be doing all the talking. It's truly a peer group. We've been hired as professional facilitators to ensure that. Um, And here's who's on the call. So the thing that is magnetic is the peer group, not the consultant. Sometimes that's hard for the consultant to hear. Um, But when I say the CISO of Apple and the CISO of the Hartford Insurance Company and the CISO of General Motors will be on this call, we'd love to invite you to join. That's an August group. And at some point, you kind of trigger a fear of missing out, FOMO. Mm -hmm. Where people are like, well, crap, I could get fired if I missed this call. All the biggies are on it. So that's, that's what we're trying to create with our calls out. That said, it takes us 13 touches by phone or by email to sort of bust through the gatekeepers and say, this is not spam. Um, this is truly an offer that you should take seriously. And yeah. all of those touches are different touches, I guess. You've got perhaps emails going out. You've got phone calls. You've got We're fans of phone calls, old school. It used to be we would talk to assistants, PAs, executive assistants, and sort of explain the proposition. They would pass on the decision to their CXOs. These days, we're leaving a lot of voicemails. 
it really helps. I mean, if in terms of the art of the cold call, if I spam someone with, with an email, it could get deleted in a second yep. or yep. half a second. If it gets out of the spam folder, when I call you and I say, hey, Joe, this is Tom McMakin over in the States. I live in Montana. I want to invite you to a roundtable of other professors of uh, professional services consultants. Is this something that you would be interested in? And if, if you can hear the humanity in my voice and the fact that it's not yeah. a script and that I'm making this up and I don't do it all day, every day. Yeah. Um, and then you say, look, rather than us trying to connect by phone immediately, what I'll do is I'll send you an email by way of follow-up with some of the details. And then in that subject line, I'll just say, uh, per my voicemail, and those get opened and those get responded to. So I'm guessing you've got, with the people you've got, I'm guessing you recruit people who have great interpersonal skills and can talk and are reasonably confident. But I'm also guessing you do a bit of mentoring there in terms of listening and advising and shaping them. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think we're agnostic about someone's background. They can have a business background, but they could have a theater background or, God forbid, a philosophy background. We have a number of people that have done quite well in sports. I'm always looking for somebody with a demonstrated history of success. So we have a, an American football player that is the head of our business development, and he'd never taken a lick of a business course or ever really worked for a business of wow. any size at all. But since he was 13, he dedicated himself to football. He went to Northwestern University on a scholarship. He was the captain of the football team. He got drafted by an NFL team, and that NFL team won the Super Bowl. And I'm wow. like, So this is the guy that knows how to put his head down and Mm. grind through the repetitions necessary Mm. to get quite expert at something over time. We've got a number of them. We have a world-class Nordic skier. She just missed the Olympics, the Olympic team, but she's quite fast. Anyway, I love people that have done something very well. We have a woman that has competed at the international levels in synchronized swimming, an author that has a Masters of Fine Arts from Dartmouth College, one of our best colleges. Again, it's just a demonstrated history of success. And if they bring that sensibility and, as you say, a kind of an emotional quotient, intelligence to the table, we can train them in the kind of relatively simple block and tackling of convening people and sparking a conversation. I'm guessing also quite hard to find them because if, if I say MBA students from top three universities, you can find them quite easily. So how do you go about finding these these hardworking, dedicated, talented people without being specifically focused on a type? Yeah, it's a great question. So we live in a small community, and so word gets around. Like We're a top-tier employer. We pay people quite okay. well, top decile. We have the best benefits that you can have in, in this community. So all that helps. But at the end of the day, I think the thing that founders and people that are growing companies, the mistake they often make is, How can I, what do I do to get better people? That's the right question, but it tends to, it tends to get you thinking in terms of a a tick you could do on a a to-do list. And really it's a long-term project. And the long-term project is that you hire that first woman, Carly Breen, and you treat her well by way of benefits and compensation and respect and meaning in her work. And she floats around the community and people say, Carly, where do you work? And she says, oh, I work over at Pi. And that reputation, people are like, I want to work at Pi. And to this now, we have a monstrous reputation where every time we advertise, we get 50 applications from the sort of broader community here. And that allows us to be super choosy about who we recruit, which keeps the flywheel of that 
the queen keeps this sort of virtuous cycle of good people attracting more good people, which creates a good culture, which attracts more good people. But I think the tip I would say is this is not something that's done tomorrow. It's done over the every day for the next 10 years. That's a really lovely point. And one final question, Go, looking forward now. So you've expanded incredibly well since you took over in a relatively short pace, space of time for a professional service firm. Some of them take decades and decades to get to the, to the size you are now. Can you keep, given how small the top consultancy market is, can you, is that still going to remain your focus for the future? You're going to focus that on, as your number one signature no, service? It's such, that's such a great question, Joe, because when you're very small, the best advice you can get and act on is to niche yourself yeah. as a consultant. Yeah. I'm the world's best expert at something quite small across the world. And you become known for that. And the reason it's important to niche is because it's difficult to sort of punch through the noise. And when someone has a particular problem, that you want them to think of you first. Mm. And if your website says, we do everything for everybody everywhere, mm. uh, they won't think of you first. Uh, sure. That won't. Specificity attracts. All right, so you niche yourself. And in our case, we niched ourselves in terms of sort of building peer groups, communities of would-be buyers on behalf of, of professional service mm. kind of uh, practices. And we've done a quite a good job of that. I would say we're the leader in the world at that. And now we're beginning to, as you say, bump up against the edges of that market. How big can that be at the end of the day? Probably twice as big as what we're doing, maybe even three times. Yeah. But at some point, it logically sort of runs out of real estate. And so we've begun to invest in, in kind of other service lines that are next to adjacent to the ones that we have. The problem is we're running into a brand prison, what I might call a brand sure. prison, which is our niche is now working against us because we want to be known for not just the creation of peer groups uh, to drive business development, but also alumni groups of consultancies. So okay. one of the best ways in which consultants drive business is to stay in touch with the folks that used to work there sure. and now work in industry. And so there's a need to help those companies build and stay in touch with their alumni. So we're trying to get into that market it's just a little bit different than the first mm. market we talked about. And so expanding our brand and expanding the communication of what we do, not so far as that it's watered down and meaningless, yep. Yep. but large enough to include the service line is always difficult. I think my view is that at some point you start having different websites. You try not, you don't try and cram it all into yep. one. Yep. You say we're the world's best cybersecurity firm protecting mid-sized law firms in the southeastern part of the United States. You have that website. And then you have another website that says we're the world's best secure of accounting firms in the southeast. And you just say, I'm going to have endorsing quotes from those relevant universes on those different websites and different case studies. And maybe there's a way in which they're joined under you know a common banner offline. But, oh. but when it comes to customer focusing, facing our brands are quite niched and quite sharp. I completely get that. Yeah, it's interesting because with some firms, they develop a service in a market and they'll replicate that in different markets. More commonly in the same market, they'll develop sort of aligned services. But I'm guessing it would be a hard thing to do to grow internationally because I'm guessing, in fact, I know that once you get out of America and three countries in Europe, 
people don't use management consultants that much. And um, when they do, it's very often not the same people that you'd be talking to, I guess. I think that the tale of international expansion for the vast majority of firms is the same, which is they're brought, they're taken internationally by their current client. And that was the case with us. So one of our clients is KPMG. They have, as you know, a very large presence, a dominating presence in Europe. They took us to Europe. They took us to Latin America. They took us to Asia. They said, we want to bring some people together that we want to serve in Australia, New Zealand, for example. So now we are, quote, international. Uh, We do work all over the world. But we certainly weren't of any scale such that we could invest in an Amsterdam office and try and greenfield the continent. That's just a bridge too far. Maybe someday there'll be a, a kind of mass of work on the continent that requires us or sure. to have an office, but we want to sort of organically grow into that future. Other than acquisitions, it's very difficult to sort of, I think, travel across geographies in yeah. that way. Unless that's your core proposition, which is you link up two different territories or three different territories. It's um, sure out of all the successful consulting firms that I interviewed that started and grew, there were only two that had successfully moved international. And both of those, it was their core proposition. You know, they introduced American and Asian firms, for example. Before we end, I want to just mention something which I think is a key challenge for consultants, which is a study after study says that employees are engaged by a sense of meaning, which I take to mean their place in a wider story. What is going on here? And sometimes when we're consultants, that story can feel weak. It can actually, it can have a bad form. Well, we help male, pale, and stale Hmm. rich guys get richer. That's what we do. We work with other companies that that, uh, are owned by people and we try and help them make more money. And that's a kind of soulless maybe proposition. I think all of us have to think about what is the project that we're we're doing here. Hmm. And I think we've we've come to understand there are many, many, many very difficult planets, but many, many difficult problems across the planet Hmm. that need solving. There's lots of distributed intelligence around those problems, but increasingly in a small world, connecting answers solutions with problems is a is difficult it's an inefficient market and our job as consultants is to be to mix metaphors here to be a bee that cross-pollinates best practices Hmm. across geography and that's a high calling it's a high calling to try and connect human intelligence with profound problems so that as a species we sort of march forward that's those are my words that's a story that we tell ourselves about what we're doing, but I think it's a it's an issue for the profession as a whole mm, yeah. to understand one's effort in terms of its larger consequence. Especially now, so I teach you know people ranging from in fact most of mine are now postgraduates, but ranging from eighteen through to twenty eight. It's not just so. In the old days, it was kind of banking versus consulting if you were that type of professional. Now there's Facebook and Google and the SaaS firms, and they're all paying really well. But on your point specifically, it's a, a lot of students are looking for something more. In some cases, they're happy to accept a lower wage to go and do something that's more meaningful and gives them more purpose. I think part of that is that 
many of them thought they really work hard and if they really struggle and they get a good degree, they could walk into any job, which, you know, going back 20 years was probably true. But there's so many people coming out with degrees now and there's so much automation at the bottom of the pyramid. There's fewer of those types of jobs around and the cost of living, the cost of house prices and all the rest of it. I think some students are very much looking out and thinking, well, I'm never going to be able to afford a house no matter what I do. So I may as well go and work saving turtles on the Greek beaches or live for the moment more. Yeah, I think what we do as a profession is not only important, making the world smaller, if you will, Mm, mm. connecting intelligence across the globe. Not only is that important, it's quite fun. I don't want to lose sight of that. All of us that are consultants are helpers. We enjoy going into a sort of muddy problem and helping sort through it in a way that kind of aligns everything so that there's sort of progress made. Yeah. Um, that's quite a fun thing to do, uh, yeah. to be a problem solver yeah. and to yeah. help, help build value. It's important not to lose sight of that, yeah. particularly when we're consultants are often quite smart at one thing, accounting, finance, or mm. cybersecurity, or HR, cloud platforms, or whatever their expertise is and you get trained up in that expertise, you can lose sight of the fact that what we're really trying to do here is advance the other people's projects Mm. in a way that's quite helpful to them. When I think of a business development, which is our expertise, I always say we're in the business of making new friends and helping consultants make new friends. That's not a terrible business to be in. (laughs) Uh, It's a good business to be in. That's fair enough. I would also add one other thing to that, is that I think... The skills that you learn as a consultant, the ability to break down problems, to structure problems, to prioritize, and also the interpersonal skills that you get are skills that make you more effective as a person. And so it drives my wife up the wall. But, you know, when we were moving house or when we're choosing schools for the boys or when we're deciding whether to invest, I've got this logical framework that's been drummed into me. And I can break down the problems, I can prioritize them, I score them, I can create a plan from them. And I think that comes instinctively. And I think the certainly the interpersonal skills that you guys would be so good at and are so good at give you such a good standing in life that you won't get if you become, say, a banker or a coder or an architect, something like that. You're exactly right. And I mean, it's uh, famously, there's an author, Michael Gerber, that's based in California. Yeah, yeah. He's written a book called The E-Myth, the, I think one of the most popular books of all time. It's quite small. It's quite simple. And it can be summed up as don't just work in the business, work on the business. So yeah. going back to my bread baking background, don't just stand in front of the oven pulling the bread out, but think about the bakery as a whole and how you're going to market, what products you're offering, what prices, work on the business. I think that the skill of a consultant is to not just see the business at a ground level, but to sort of jump on a plane and get some perspective and have a kind of meta view of what is going on, an abstract view of what is going on. And then to connect, to sort of be a pattern recognition animal and connect the pattern that you see with other patterns that are exist in the world and learn from those other patterns and then import best practices. That's um, it's quite a heady game. And it's quite a skill, particularly when you're counseling a bread baker that's quite focused on when the bread is done, what is fully baked. 
And suddenly you bring in this abstract perspective, but it's both welcome and it's a skill or maybe a talent to be able to sort of see across a geography and connect the dots and to create relevancy in what you see. It's quite fun. It's quite, I think in the world of business, it's one of the more academic corners yeah. intellectually stimulating corners of business. Not, none of us are in the, none of us have the project of assembling, I don't know, dog food bowls. We're thinking broadly about strategy and go to market execution. And that's yeah. interesting. And if you're a consultant to the consulting industry, you get even more meta because you, oh, <laughs> there you go. Oh my goodness. Yes. Brilliant. Tom, listen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real my pleasure. pleasure. Talking to you. Joe, I'm a big fan of your work. So this has uh, been a great pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care, Tom. As ever, thank you for listening to the Consultancy Growth Podcast. This is Professor Joe Omani at joeomani.com.